0: Recently, Fordham University held its annual Women's Philanthropy Summit. Over 200 alumni, students, and faculty came together to network and reflect about life's struggles and strengths. The keynote was given by Kirsten Swinth, an associate professor of history and American studies at Fordham University. She shared views on societal challenges for women and discussed her new book, Feminism's Forgotten Fight, The Unfinished Struggle for Work and Family. I'm Robin Shannon. And on today's Fordham Conversations, we bring you an abridged version of Kirsten Swinth's speech.
1: Okay, I so have a prop. I'm, I'm really excited. It's not officially out yet. So like the fact that I have a few of these little books in my hand is like, uh, you know, my little baby I'm holding on to here. So uh, thank you, Martha, for that kind introduction. Thank you to um, Hope and to Gina Virgell and Liz Mannigan and Liz Davis and all the other people who helped organize today's fantastic event. I feel extraordinarily fortunate to be giving this talk here today. This book was nurtured by Fordham, by my life as a Fordham faculty member, by the research support that I received uh, from the institution, by the leaves they granted me to do this work. and um, by my colleagues and by my wonderful students in my US Women's History class. And it's my first talk on this book. Um, So I'm thrilled that I get to do it here with all of you. Martha gave me a perfect opening. I start back before the story that she told us about the fate of pregnant workers today. Um, It was 1966 just two years after the landmark Civil Rights Act made it illegal for the first time ever to discriminate against women in the workplace. And Ida Phillips, a mother of seven, applied for an assembly line position at Martin Marietta in Orlando, Florida. Phillips had been waitressing, but the hours were unpredictable um, and the wages were terrible, and she was looking for a better regular job. Martin Marietta turned her down flat. They cited their policy that they would not hire women with preschool aged children and refused to even consider her application. Phillips fired off an outraged letter to President Johnson that night and with the support of both civil rights and feminist lawyers, she took her case all the way to the Supreme Court. It's not just for myself that I'm doing this, Phillips would later observe, it's for all mothers. Although more and more mothers, like Phillips have been going to work in the two decades after World War II, underlying beliefs about their primary obligation to family had not changed. It was not only legal to deny mothers like Phillips jobs, to deny pregnant workers a job, but also to keep a woman from going back to work after giving birth, even if she wanted to. Pregnancy and childbirth were routinely and wholly legally excluded from employer health insurance plans. When Phillip's case was heard before the Supreme Court, her cause seemed so outlandish that the justices and Martin Marietta's lawyers bantered back and forth about the horrifying potential outcomes of giving her a job. Female porteresses on trains, female ditch diggers, male stewards on airplanes. Now, one Martin Marietta lawyer was so horrified at that thought that they thought the airlines would simply go out of business if there weren't female stewardesses to attract male businessmen onto the airlines. Chief Justice Warren Burger worried out loud that he would have to hire a lady law clerk, and oh no, she'd have to go home at 6 p.m. to cook dinner for her husband. Phillips won her case in in January 1971. Much to the surprise after that testimony. Um, Yet, in 1973, feminist lawyers still had a 75-page brief that listed unfair workplace policies directed at pregnant women. My favorite one of these was the right to use your paid vacation days as a worker to take a vacation on the beaches of bermuda but not to give birth i won't get into the details but and they're fascinating but let me just tell you that feminist lawyers across the country including ruth bader ginsburg who led many of the most important cases filed suit after suit And after the Supreme Court ruled decisively against them in December 1976, outraged feminists, led partly by Ginsburg, founded a coalition to fight for legislation ending discrimination against pregnant workers. The coalition eventually had over 200 organizations as members, and feminists successfully spearheaded the passage of the Pregnancy Discrimination Act just 20 months later in October 1978. And in fact, in a week, on October 31st, we will witness the 40th anniversary of the signing of the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. (coughs) Phillips' case, and the Campaign for the Pregnancy Discrimination Act illustrate the power of women's collective action to bring about change. Films turned to social movements to support her fight, first civil rights, then women's rights. It was those networks that turned an individual's case into a cause for all American women. And it was the data gathering of feminist lawyers fueled by a healthy dose of shared outrage and frustration that generated the 75-page brief, so critical to backing up advocates' testimony to Congress and rallying broad public support for the legislation. I wanna talk today about the power of such collective action by American feminists of the 1960s and 1970s on behalf of issues that we now call work and family. By work and family, I mean the umbrella of issues that start in the home and end in the workplace that still create barriers to women's equality. They encompass equitable sharing of household labor, fair treatment of those who work in homes caring for the children, the disabled and elderly, and adequate opportunity to care for newborns and infants without losing a job or being impoverished but they also involve accessible and affordable childcare, flexible scheduling that benefits women and children, and fighting the still unequal burden of family care, blocking gender equity in pay. I'm drawing on my new book, Feminism's Forgotten Fight, The Unfinished Struggle for Work and Family, to provide us with some stories, some examples, some highs and lows in the fight for women's uh, equality uh, that feminists led four decades ago. My aim is to reflect on what feminists achieved, to tell perhaps a new story of the movement, what stalled out their ambitious vision, why we haven't achieved it, and what we in this room might take away for our own lives, about shared commitments to fight for equality and social justice, and about ways to give back to our communities and society. I begin inside the home where feminists put forward an array of creative proposals to give value and recognition to housework. On February 11th, 1975, activists gathered at the Hudson Guild Fulton Center to learn about the campaign for wages for housework. Imported from Europe in the late 1960s, wages for housework committees formed across the U.S. and demanded wages for homemakers to be provided by the government. By their reasoning, unpaid housework added value to the economy while leaving women dependent and vulnerable. Paying wages to homemakers was a fair way to compensate them for their labor and to force society to see the contributions housewives made. The Hudson Guild Fulton Center meeting was part of an educational campaign that the New York Wages for Housework Committee launched in early 1975. And you can see their sort of brilliantly graphic illustration of uh, the impact uh, of women's household labor uh, in this flyer for that meeting. Wages for Housework advocates in this educational campaign explored the range of ways that the lack of pay for household labor left women vulnerable. They were vulnerable uh, to substandard housing because they had no money to pay for rent. They were vulnerable to exploitation at the second jobs they had to take to make ends meet. And they were vulnerable to impoverishment in old age, because housewives built up no social security benefits in their own right. Now, wages for housework activists were radicals, and the movement itself did not result in a new system of wages for housework. Their proposals, however, had broad appeal in the period, and feminists of all stripes picked up on their analysis of how unequal responsibility for unpaid housework contributed to women's inequality. There was added urgency to the fears about women's economic vulnerability as homemakers in the 1970s, as more and more women, particularly middle-aged women, faced um, life on their own uh, with rising divorce rates. Uh, And more and more of them were forced out of the home with little economic resources um, and into the labor force by the weak economy. So feminists were acutely aware that housewives were a prime target for thinking about the problem of equality. And indeed, they fought in a variety of enormously creative and occasionally comical ways. One of feminist favorite in jokes about housewives' precarious situation was captured in this sardonic Doonesbury cartoon. Doonesbury's uh, kind of alternate lifestyleist Nicole reports on the latest hot tip for women at home: trade a maid. In this scheme, housewives A and B, their best friends, they cross the street. They clean each other's homes. They get paid wages by each other's husbands. Um, They deposit Social Security uh, in their own names because of getting paid wages by each other's husbands. They get some money. They contribute to family income. Their husbands learn the value of housework. Um, Why, that's the most amazing system I've ever heard of, Nicole sputters DJ Mark. It's illegal though, right? Not yet, Nicole replies. Uh Now, trade-made schemes took more serious form in legislative and legal change. Uh, At the state level, feminist lawyers and legislators worked to enshrine recognition of housewives' contribution to marital property in divorce law, Um, While at the national level, feminist legislators like New York's Bella Abzug and California's Yvonne Brathwaite Burke sponsored a host of legislation to expand divorced women's access to social security and support middle-aged divorced women through job training programs. And I'm happy to talk in more detail about the whole kind of array of all these things that they accomplished, but I'm trying to give you the biggest picture I can in a short amount of time. Among feminist legislative successes on behalf of the problem of housework uh, was an April 1974 law that required payment of the minimum wage to domestic workers. Household workers were among the lowest paid and least protected American workers. They had been deliberately excluded from the package of worker rights that were first enacted during the Depression of the 1930s. So domestic workers worked in a kind of nether world of uh, employment with many of the worker protections that we take for granted now not uh, extended to them. In the mid-1960s, domestic workers began to organize to fight for better treatment uh, for what they called the three Ps, pay, protection, and professionalism. In 1971, Edith Barksdale Sloan took over the leadership of the new national organization, the Household Technicians of America. HTA had 37 affiliates and 25,000 members at its peak in 1974. That was on a par, by the way, of the largest national women's organizations in this period, just to give you a sense of the scale of organizing. That was done by leaders like Edith Barkdale Sloan, who was a graduate of Hunter uh, College and a a former official with the US Commission on Civil Rights. But the foot soldiers of the movement were everyday ordinary domestic and household workers, women who were uh, largely African American. HTA forged an alliance uh, that was sometimes fraught, but nevertheless sturdy with mainstream feminist organizations like the National Organization for Women, um, major feminist leaders signed onto the cause, Eleanor Holmes Norton, the African-American New York City Human Rights Commissioner, Dorothy Hainer, the labor activist and now founder, and Gloria Steinem, for example, all backed the group. What HTA shared with other feminist activists was the insight that society systematically undervalued women's household labor, and in doing so, perpetuated women's inequality. Feminists were painted at the time, and have been since, as unremittingly hostile to housewives and the home. This simply is not true. In their wide-ranging housework activism, Feminists turned their energies to the private side of the challenge of work and family. They wanted men to share the housework, of course, too, and I could talk more about the wide array of activism in the Q&A that they did to get men involved in the home, um, and also about male feminists who joined them. they didn't just want men to share in the housework, they also wanted uh, unpaid homemaking to be a life possibility that did not penalize women or leave them economically vulnerable. In other words, they wanted it possible to be a homemaker without facing the prospect of destitution or lacking uh, autonomy and independence uh, and economic security. They also wanted to be sure that those who did this essential work for pay, like domestic workers, were respected and fairly compensated for it. So the home was one place where the second wave demanded changes in work and family. But so was society.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, and you're listening to Kirsten Swinth, an associate professor of history and American studies at Fordham. She recently gave the keynote at the university's annual Women's Philanthropy Summit and is discussing her latest book, Feminism's Forgotten Fight, The Unfinished Struggle for Work and Family.
1: Important workplaces where feminists fought for change was the federal government. The federal government was the largest national employer. It had around 700,000 working in the federal civil service in the late 1960s. And as the feminist movement began to gain momentum, women working for the government looked around and saw the discrimination they were enduring day to day in their work, saw how they were being held back at the bottom of the civil service ladder. And in 1968, they formed the organization Federally Employed Women, um, it was originally called Too Few. Uh, federally employed women and then it's now, it's still alive today federally employed women uh, isn't has uh, chapters all across the country and uh, outside the US even where some federal workers are based um, their goal was to advance women in the civil services and they were one of many such workplace caucuses to advance women's interests inside workplaces that feminists stimulated so I use few and even though it's in the public sector as an example of the kind of organizing that happened also in private sector workplaces across the country. The organization included all grades of civil service workers. The first president was a black civil rights activist named Allie Latimer Whedon. Few supported training to advance women up the civil service ladder and monitored federal equal employment programs. But they also partnered with feminist legislators like Patricia Schroeder of Colorado, to promote part-time and flexible scheduling legislation. They introduced bill after bill, and in 1978, in September 1978, Congress fa- passed the first Flexible Scheduling Act for the federal government, making the federal government a model of flexible scheduling opportunities. It was uh, initially a temporary law, uh, and over time has become a permanent part of several s- civil service employment. So, What's the end result uh, of all of this activism? It was a comprehensive vision of change in the work and family order. Feminists did not envision simply opening the door to the workplace, although we should not underestimate what an achievement that was. They didn't open the door and shove women in and say, you figure it out. Right? They didn't envision making women into mini men, into you know, the same as 1950s male breadwinners. Rather, feminists fought for change at home, like valuing housework. They fought for change and action by society, as in supporting universal childcare, and they fought for changes in workplaces through real, flexible, and part-time work possibilities. From their perspective, full citizenship for women required not simply individual opportunity, but changes in society, institution, and culture. Now clearly, what I've described is not a vision achieved. So why did change stall? First, opposition rallied. It grew stronger over the course of the the 1970s as conservatives gained power and as a conservative pro-family movement fought feminist proposals. Perhaps the peak moment of conflict where this growing divide and the growing mobilization against feminist agenda uh, became apparent was at a peak moment for the women's movement. This was the 1977 National Women's Conference in Houston, where tens of thousands of women came together to advance a plan of action for women to celebrate the achievements of the movement. But a counter-mobilization occurred in Houston, where virtually equals of numbers of women and men, uh, rallied by the pro-family movement, gathered to oppose feminist initiatives, claiming that they undermined the family, that they endangered children, uh, and that they advanced an immoral man-hating agenda. The pro-family movement forged an alliance with the emerging conservatives of the Ronald Reagan era and went on to help successfully stall out many of feminists' uh, proposals. But I think that change stalled uh, in addition because changes in laws were not the same as changes in culture. It's hard to make deep-seated shifts in identities and intimate relations. And it's hard to make changes in institutions. And what we've ended up with is something that I think of as more anodyne and in some ways a term I'm seeking to try to get us to have a different conversation about. We lost the history of feminist activism for work and family, when the conversation we had became about the choices individual mothers make. As early as 1978, the feminist writer Letty Cotton Pogrebin was recognizing the limitations of that conversation as she dissected the emerging myth, as she called it, of having it all. The idea of having it all is that women can have it all. It's a wonderful thing, right, to have the kind of full lives that men had had of caring for children and having uh, vital employment and satisfying enriched lives. But having it all has increasingly morphed into an attack on feminism for failing to enable women to have the full choices that they were supposed to have. And the attack on feminism has been leveled even as early as the 1980s by feminist stalwarts like the leader, Betty Friedan, who accused feminists of failing to pay attention to the problem of the family. That's simply not true. My work and as I hope I've shown to you today, has uncovered this enormous array of activism on behalf of the family that feminists undertook in the 1960s and 1970s. And I think it's time to resurrect that history, and that's in part what motivated me to write this book. I think that in this history, we can see a feminism for our own time. Um, because despite the Me Too movement, which I think is an absolutely critical movement, the top issues that women describe in survey after survey uh, of their workplace concerns are wage inequity, which is linked, by the way, to their responsibilities for caring for children and homes, um, the problem of combining child rearing and breadwinning, and work life balance. So we need to resurrect the comprehensive vision of the second wave that included involved fatherhood, equitable housework and caring labor, including fair pay and working conditions for those doing that work as paid labor. We need decent supports for mothering, especially for those who are poor or single parents, so that not only middle class and wealthy women and men have adequate time to be with and raise their children, we need universal child care as a public good like libraries, parks, and public schools. We need real paid family leave. We are one of two nations in the entire world that does not have paid maternity leave. Our companion in that status is Papua New Guinea. Flexible schedules and part-time work need to be made real jobs for both women and men with benefits and career ladder opportunities. So I I know that this is an idealistic vision, right? But sometimes I think it's important just to put it out there, to know that that vision was put, put forward before, to know that a whole movement of activists got behind it and made gains, and to know that despite defeats, they regrouped and rallied across the 1960s and 1970s. And I think it gives us some ideas about how to act and where to act today. So I close with a bit of a how-to manual, uh, my takeaway from Second Wave Feminist Organizing. So what do we do? Where can we get involved? How can we make change today? First. It's important to get involved in associations, in groups. Feminists organized together in groups uh, collectively, like the giving circles that we're talking about today. Women coming together collectively to set goals and priorities and seek change. Internal organizations, I cannot underestimate the significance of workplace networks and associations, and I mean in that not just the old girls' network, which is extremely important, but the kind of self-conscious organizing that brought women at all ranks Uh, at all employment levels in an organization together to collectively understand how women were being stalled out, what kinds of barriers and obstacles they faced in their workplaces. It involves getting engaged with the halls of government from becoming elected officials to working on government commissions. There are all kinds of commissions that local and state governments set up that many feminists in this period became involved in and were an effective way to scrounge up funding for key initiatives that they wanted to advance. Getting involved in the legal arena, um, there was a huge network of feminist lawyers that is still alive today. As always, taking to the streets, it never hurts. And finally, I encourage us uh, to change the conversation, to talk less about how can we make better choices for individual women as they choose between work and family to stop talking about choices and to start talking about humane lives for all, Um, where it's not only individual lives that are at stake, but the collective restructuring of society. And so I leave you with that vision of humane lives for all.
0: My thanks to Professor Kirsten Swinth and the organizers of the Women's Philanthropy Summit at Fordham University. I'd also like to thank my senior producer, Marina Koff, and producer, Andrew Millman. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Sunday at 6 a.m. You can also follow us on Twitter, friend us on Facebook, and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.